So, hello, I'm Alex Rudkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Known Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today on this, well, this rather damp day where I am, um, in the shed by Dr Tim Meek. Um, people who've watched any of these before know that I much prefer the, the person I'm speaking to to introduce themselves. So, Tim, come on, over to you. Um, introduce yourself, please. Sure. And uh, thanks, Alex, for inviting me. So I am a consultant anaesthetist. That's my day job. I work in Middlesbrough in the northeast of England, uh, particular interest in obstetric anaesthesia. Uh, but I'm also involved in the Association of Anaesthetists, which is a 10,000 strong membership organisation in the UK uh, whose members are uh, anaesthetists, as the, uh, as, as, the, as the name suggests. And I've been on the elected board of that organization since 2014. Uh, I've done various things during the time, uh, my time there, including chairing the safety committee and uh, developing some uh, safety guidelines, uh, one of which uh, you've been, uh, been involved in. I'm sure we'll talk about that as, as, as this progresses. Uh, and I'm currently vice president of the association. So that's me in a nutshell. Very excellently uh, concise nutshell. Thank you, thank you. So yeah, we we you mentioned the guidelines, which um, are around essentially do not attempt CPR, decision making, and advanced care planning, and thinking about that in the the perioperative zone for anaesthetists. So right. assume you are talking to somebody who, for all of those, for, for whom all of those words just mean absolutely nothing. Just just walk us through kind of what you're thinking, what, why we were thinking, or why the thought was we need some guidelines here. So we just get an idea of what an anaesthetist might be doing, having to think about any sure. of the issues. Okay, so we'll just put it into context. Most people know what an anaesthetist does. Um, one way that it's often described is that, is that we act as the patient's advocate uh, in the operating theatre. So we look after not only all of their bodily functions while they're asleep, but also... Um, there's a wider aspects of, of uh, you know, holistic care. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to come across patients who've got what we used to call a DNAR. Um, and uh, as, as we both know, there, there are now lots of different terms for um, pieces of paper, or other documents that, that dictate how a patient would like to be treated in the event that things go wrong. Uh, and so from that point of view, it's very much in our interest to know how these things work and what the implications are. Um, in terms of, uh, of, of what we actually come across, there's great variation in, in the paperwork. So in my own hospital, for instance, uh, there are two pieces of paper that we commonly see, one of which is the do not attempt CPR uh, recommendation. But then there's also a stratified treatment and escalation plan. So two separate pieces of paper that describe entirely different things. And I suppose from the point of view of a jobbing anaesthetist, you really need to know when a patient presents for your care, if they've got one of these pieces of paper, what, what you should do in the event that things don't go entirely to plan. Uh, now, how did we come to this? Well, we had on the association website, uh, a piece of guidance that relates to this, but it was, it was, I was going to say rather out of date. It was very out of date, and, and actually it was picked up by um, uh, a, a colleague from elsewhere, Dr. Zoe Fritz, uh, who who is involved in resuscitation. She'd been doing some research, and she found our document on the website and contacted us to say, actually, you know, this is out of date. 
So uh, I asked her if she'd help us revise it. And she was one of the members of the working party, along with yourself and, and, and some other people uh, that helped us do that. So that kind of brings us to where we are today. And that, that guideline has just, just launched within the last, I guess, the last 10 days. and seems to have been favorably received, let's say. So I, I really like the idea of this, that the initiatives being the patient's advocate um, in the operating theater. Can I just sort of get a sense of how the anaesthetists or how you you approach matter before you get to the operating theatre. So you're engaging with the patient. I mean, let, let's start with the patient who currently has got the ability to participate in discussions. So not, not a patient who's brought in, you know, unconscious and there might be further things required, but someone who's currently got capacity to, to take part in the discussions. What sort of things would you be thinking an anaesthetist would be, would be asking at that stage? I mean, given that all the other people who might be involved in the procedure. Oh, so we will always go and um, form a preoperative visit. Uh, and the principal reason behind that is to find out about the patient's medical history, about any things that might influence the sort of anaesthetic that you might want to discuss with them and offer to them. Uh, and also to think about how you might conduct the anaesthetic and, and sort of planning ahead, I suppose, for, for what might go on. And it's where you find out things like what medication they take and whether they have any allergies, family history of anything interesting like that. Um, and once you've assembled all the information that you that you need, you then have a discussion about what's the the best or the preferred form of anesthesia. And sometimes that will involve a discussion about what happens if uh, you know there, there is an, an unintended outcome. Uh, and that's where these guidelines, I guess, come in, come into play to help colleagues know what to do and where to look, uh, because it's not always entirely obvious. And I, I think there are probably quite a lot of myths or misunderstandings around how to approach this area of, of perioperative medicine. Yeah. Can we, well, actually, let's just, just, just piggyback on that. So, I mean, what's, you know, just given us an example of, of, of a myth or a misunderstanding, you know, you, you, you might hear on the wall or you might hear in, you know, in a yeah. discussion, you go, hang on a minute. Well, so rather like, I suppose, uh, with issues of consent, I think sometimes People will focus very much on the, on the paperwork and the process without actually thinking what it means. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consent and discussions about resuscitation essentially are uh, they're like a fact-finding mission, aren't they? It's where you speak to the patient and you find out what they would want to happen uh, in a particular set of circumstances. Um, and I think sometimes colleagues get rather tied up or worried that if they do it wrong, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to get sued. There's going to be a complaint. Uh, and that can sometimes, I think, become a bit distracting from the actual job in hand, which is really just talking to a person and, and finding out what they want to happen to their body. Uh, and I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, one, one aspect I remember we, we had quite a lot, I mean, understandably, drawing up guidelines is a process, a kind of iterative process. There's lots of discussion backwards and forwards. And one of the areas which I, I have to say I found particularly interesting was the, the discussion around do not attempt CPR recommendations. So the recommendations, you know, this is um, unlikely to be appropriate to attempt CPR if. And, and the discussion we had, which is then reflected in the guidelines around essentially the circumstances under which it's appropriate for that recommendation to effectively be lifted during a procedure. 
And I'd just be really interested because I'm not a clinician and I just would be really interested in the kind of the thinking there about there are certain aspects where, you know, somebody comes in with a DNA CPR recommendation, which is, as it were, entirely appropriate, but there's a procedure and you go, well, actually, for these specific reasons, it wouldn't be appropriate for that to be in place during that procedure. Can you just sort of help me through understanding that thinking? Um, So... I guess from an anaesthetist point of view, just on a very, on a, on a very basic level, it would be almost impossible to just stand back uh, in the circumstance that somebody has a cardiac arrest on the operating table, for instance, and just say, that's it, I'm, I'm not gonna do anything. Uh, and the reason is because when these sort of things happen in an operating theater, it's more often than not because of something that we've done to the patient. Now, it might be something that we've been intending to do. So we've given some drugs to anesthetize them. Those drugs have a, a particular range of effects. And sometimes that might uh, put, put the patient into a position where a cardiac arrest happens. Now, that's not the same as whatever's going on in the patient's life. You know, they've got a disease that's progressive or whatever. Um, they haven't suffered that cardiac arrest because of normal disease progression. It's because something that effectively we've done to them. So... I think generally the view is that, that, that you should reverse the things that you have done to the, pa- to the patient. Now, I mean, it may be in a patient who is very unwell um, and is, is very close to their end of life pathway that, that your efforts are in vain. But and the general uh, belief is that, is that you would still attempt to reverse that, that cardiac arrest. Uh, and what we generally find is that, that when these things happen in theatres, that, that they don't usually happen completely unheralded. There's usually some, something that, that, that comes beforehand that will alert you to, you know, things are not going as, as planned. And so at that point, you can start to reverse whatever you've done um, mm-hmm. and try and ameliorate things. Uh, but I think, I think it would be just against the, the, the ethos of, of, of what we do and, and what we are, just to stand back and say, well, you know, there's a piece of paper here and it says, do not attempt resuscitation, so so we we won't. Yeah, no, I think it's. I mean, it it is really. I have to say, I mean, I've done quite a I do quite a lot of work in this area, and it, to me, it was very interesting. It was one of the most nuanced discussions about what can sometimes be, well, certainly can be perceived as a very blunt instrument, a DNA yes. CPR recommendation, and also we've certainly seen during the pandemic. DNA CPR recommendations be almost being used as code for don't escalate or try anything, which is obviously completely wrong. And so it was very interesting getting into that kind of nuanced discussion. Here is something where this is really thinking about one aspect of a patient's care. This is something completely different. And that aspect of, of you know, this might be something which actually happens, I don't want to say often, but this is a uh, and a not entirely unanticipated thing which might happen during an, an, a during an anaesthetic procedure. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it's not a discussion that we have to have with patients very, very often, of yeah. course, because most of the, the operations and uh, procedures that we're performing aren't on patients who are in that situation. Yeah. Uh, but it does depend on what your case mix is. Uh, so, I mean, for instance, in my practice, I, I do an orthopedic trauma list once a week and a large number of the patients on that are elderly patients with broken hips or other broken bones um, and often coming from, from uh, care organisations elsewhere. And they'll often come with, with some recommendations in place. 
Whereas somebody who's doing predominantly pediatric or obstetric practice won't come across this at all often. Yeah. Have you ever come across a situation? I mean, just really, because I know we sort of covered it in the guidelines. It's sort of interesting to dig into where somebody is saying, I don't want X, Y, and Z, which then kind of limits what you would be comfortable doing. I mean, I sort of, I know in, in other zones, for instance, you've got situations where someone who's a Jehovah's Witness saying, I, I can't accept blood. And that's going to, you know, kind of circumvent or, or circumscribe the range of things which might be achievable. Obviously, they're workarounds often, but sometimes it's, it, it's not the case. I'm just sort of interested in teasing that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can think of probably several examples when, when that's happened, when somebody comes with limitations in place that you think, ah, uh, well... What's the, word, what's the best word to use for it? I mean, unwise isn't even quite the right word for it. They're, just, they're not just the decision that, that I would make in that, in that circumstance, but you know, we're all humans and we're all capable of making our own mind about things. Uh, but, but absolutely, I mean, it's, it's something that we will come across from time to time. And you know, your, your example of Jehovah's Witnesses is, is probably one of the ones that people would come across more often. Um, and of course we have guidelines on that as well. Yes. available on the website quick plug absolutely absolutely and actually one i, I should uh, as sort of a declaration of interest I, I i was involved in that and it was it was one of the things i thought was particularly fascinating on that was some of the workarounds which have been developed to deal with situations where jehovah's witness say i can't accept blood have actually then led to medical innovations which benefit other people i mean it's a really sort of absolutely you know, the negotiation process it's it's probably also important to say not only jehovah's witnesses that um that declined Blood products. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was just then also really interested in digging into with you was the, the guidance talks about the, you know, the, the, the pre-operative, then there's the during, during the procedure. And then it sort of says, we're not going to talk very much about post-operative stuff. But yeah, part, partly because my wife actually is doing a pain science MSc at the moment and that with an awful lot of anaesthetists who all seem extremely interested in the post-operative zone as well i'm yeah. just sort of interested in in just really your take on where you know the responsibilities that you've got in terms of being a patient's advocate thinking about that to what extent do you perceive those rolling on into the post-operative situation so in terms of you learned about what the patients might want might not want how much does that kind of go well i've done that i'm handing off i'm sort of interested in your sense on that yeah so i, I guess it in, in a normal day's work, when we, all, we all have an interest in our patients post-operatively. We want them to be comfortable and not nauseated and, and happy and, and go home as soon as possible. Um, usually our contact will, um, will stop once they've left recovery and have gone back to the ward. Obviously, we may go and visit them on the ward once or twice, depending on the exact circumstances, but increasingly patients go home very quickly now. Um, in the situation that we're talking about, though, I suppose there's a bit more of a graded handover. So especially if we've said this patient's coming with a recommendation not to attempt CPR and we've we've suspended that for the time in theatre, there's then a bit of a grey area. Well, at what point do we now say the, the, the recommendation is now back in force? Uh, and so I, I guess from that point of view, we might take a little bit more of a um, a, a longer-term interest in, in that patient, uh, or at least issue some instructions that kind of imply some some, some longer-term suspension of that order. Because of course, the effects of the anaesthetic, although they, they largely wear off by the time the patient returns to, to the ward, 
the effects will persist in some degree for uh, for some time, as will the, the effects of the operation they've had. Yeah. So it's not it's not like an on-off switch, I don't think, at the end of the procedure. Yeah, no, I think that's really it's really interesting. And I think there is something very subtle, not subtle, but if you say things are subtle, that always makes it so people think it's too complicated. But as you say, there is that issue where there's been that we've had the considered discussion about CPR whilst in theatre and things may, you know, they may go back to how they were, but there might also have been a different change, which means actually, you know what, there's something else going on here. So I can I can see that. So just in terms of the guidelines, what would be your hope? So if the guidelines have been published. You mentioned uh, you know, about 10 days ago, we're recording this, kind of just beginning of March 2022. What would be your, be your hope if you, you know, for the guidelines? I'm always interested in we publish guidelines then, if you see what I mean. Well, I mean, obviously, I hope that, uh, that lots of people download them and read them and implement the recommendations in them. Uh, and, and obviously, with, with our website, we have we have a, um, a way of tracking how many pe people have downloaded it. And last time I checked in, it had been downloaded something like uh, 800 times just from, from material that had been sent out to the Association of Anesthetists. Uh, there was also uh, there's sort of a double-pronged campaign, if you like, because it was published online in the Anesthesia Journal uh, as well. It's been publicized on social media from, from Anesthesia and it's had really good engagement. I was looking at it's got an altmetric score of 34, which I understand is, is good. Uh, so that, that, that means that you know, pe people are, are reading it. Uh, we've also, as you know, we had representation from the Resuscitation Council on, on the working party. So they've promoted it as well. And we were really pleased we got endorsement from them and also from Compassion in Dying, the, 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 the charity. Uh, and they've also promoted it. So, you know, there are lots of different avenues for it to get out there. Uh, how will we assess how effective it's been? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it'll be a hard one to survey, I suppose, because the, the way these things are approached in different units is, is very different. And as you know, there's different paperwork in different parts of the country. So uh, I'm not sure how we would accurately survey its, its impact. Um, but uh, from the discussions I've had, it's been well received and people have liked its, I think, fairly pragmatic recommendations. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it is. I think the, the, the question of assessment of these things is so tricky, isn't it? But I, I yeah. guess one of the things, and just I suppose we're sort of coming to the end of the time, but one of the things which I think for me the important message was, well, multiple important messages, but one of them was, for goodness sake, in your own unit, please make sure you understand the paperwork you might be seeing and what it might be saying. It seems to me to kind of, at a bare minimum, unless you get that, people are setting off on the wrong track. Yeah, I think that, that, that's, that's, that's very true. And I suppose the, the other thing, one of the things that I pushed for in, in, in the guidelines was, was to put some organizational, organizational responsibility on trusts or you know, hospitals or whatever. Um, because it's all very well to say to clinicians, you must do this, but if the system isn't in place to enable that to happen, yeah. we can't do it. Uh, and you know, when I go and do my preoperative visit, if the paperwork's in the, in the file, that's great. But if it's not, and nobody's asked, it's not always at the forefront of my mind to say to somebody, you know, when they've asked about their allergies and the medications, say, by the way, have you thought about what happens in this circumstance? I mean, really that needs to be done before the time that I, I get there. Uh, so I think putting systems in place is, is a really important thing to capture these things and make sure that there's a, I guess a fail safe way that they're then served up to the clinicians that are looking after the patient. Yeah. Yeah. 
Good. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for your time. And thank you for, I'm going to cheesily say, for, for chairing the working group um, so expertly to navigate through uh, to, to produce these guidelines, which I'll put a link to at the bottom of this, uh, at the page of this video. Sure. Right. Kind of you to say so. And uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was great fun. It was a great pleasure, actually, to, to, to work with a group of people that know more about things than I do um, and um, put together these guidelines. So I'm very pleased. Brilliant. Thank you, Tim.